Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12. And the theme of these two verses is basically this, be different. We're not to be like the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. We're to be different. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, let's uh, look at verse 11 and 12. And I'll read this for you. Reading from the inspired Word of God, so please listen in reverence and in faith. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. May God bless the reading of His Word. So up to this point, uh, Peter has been exhorting his readers uh, in part in their relationship with one another. Uh, They are to love one another uh, they are to strive to be obedient, to be holy, to fix their their hope on the glory that's waiting for them. And that should carry out in the life of the church as well. He's also reminded them of their identity, which they get from their union with Jesus Christ. So because by faith we are joined to Christ, we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But starting in verse 11, Peter now begins to pivot his focus and he begins a section that focuses more upon our relationship with the world around us. Our relationship with unbelievers that we live among. And in effect, Peter is going to be telling his his readers to be different from the world around us. In effect, he exhorts them to abstain from fleshly lusts so as to lead an exemplary life before unbelievers with an evangelistic goal in mind. So that's kind of where he's going in these two verses. So let's begin to to look at verse 11 together. Notice how he begins with... um, a description of the believers again that he's writing to. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. So he first begins by calling them beloved. Now, your translation may have friends or something like that in there, but really the the word goes back to the concept of those who are loved, and that's the better translation. Now, he's calling them beloved for really two reasons. Number one, he loves them. He, as a, an apostle, he loves these believers. Uh, he probably knows them. I mean, they're scattered throughout modern day Turkey, but these churches have been founded probably, possibly, through Peter's own evangelistic efforts in that area. We don't know for sure. But he loves them because they are fellow believers in Jesus Christ. 
So he has exhorted them earlier in chapter 1 to love one another with a pure heart. And he's a good example of that. He's expressing his love for them as fellow believers in Christ. But there's a second reason why they're beloved, and that is because they're loved by God. God loves them. God took them when they were not God's people, when they had no mercy, and He chose them to be a special covenant people. It's His love that sent to them mercy when they had no mercy. It's His love that gave them this incredible gift of everlasting life to those who put their faith in Christ. It's a love from God that cannot be taken away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Paul tells us. So that every believer that's here this morning should glory in the reality that you are loved by other believers and that most importantly, you are loved by God. God loves you. You're His child. And though we oftentimes fall short of that, God loves us. And that's something we should always glory in. So he calls them beloved. But then look at what he says after that in verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers. So now remember all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 1, he has already called them aliens. Now your translation again may have a different set of words. I'm reading the New American Standard. has aliens and strangers. Yours may have strangers and exiles or a different set of words. But he's already referred to them as aliens in verse 1 of chapter 1. So this he's picking up that concept again that these believers are aliens and strangers. It's interesting that all the way back in Genesis chapter 23, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Abraham refers to himself with these exact same two words that Peter uses. Abraham said, I'm a stranger and a sojourner among you. Or basically an alien and a stranger among you. And Peter may even have that in view. As Abraham was a physical alien and stranger, his spiritual children are spiritual aliens and strangers in the world in which we live. These two words are interesting. The first word, New American Standard translates it alien. Yours may be different. Refers to a sojourner, someone that lives long term in a foreign country that they don't have citizenship in. So that would be an alien. They're living there. They've lived there for a long time. They're an alien. The stranger, the second word that he uses, refers to those who are temporary residents in a place that's not their permanent home. So he's emphasizing again what he's already told them in verse 1, that they live in this world, but this world is not their home. They've lived here for a long time, but it's a temporary existence in this world because this world is not our permanent home. And both of these words imply that. We belong to another world. Heaven. Heaven is our home. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our Father is in heaven. 
Most of our family is in heaven. Our Savior is in heaven. And now we're on like a temporary work visa. We're living on this earth and we're here to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. But this is not our permanent home. Our permanent home is in heaven. And Peter says, don't forget that. You are an alien and you are a stranger. That you don't belong here. This is not your permanent home. I've put you here for a purpose. I've put you here for a reason. But this is not your permanent home. You're you're just an alien and a stranger. So it doesn't mean that because we're aliens and strangers, however, that we need to retreat and escape and withdraw from the culture or withdraw from the world. Rather, it's a motivation to live godly in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our world. That's the calling. In other words, it's a calling to be different. Don't be like the world around you and embrace all of its values and all of its pleasures. Be different. That's the focus, I think, that he's pressing upon them. So as aliens and strangers who live in a foreign land, let your difference be obvious to other people that you live around. So he exhorts them in verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Now what are these fleshly lusts? Well, it's just the desires of the flesh. The flesh, oftentimes in the Bible, is referred to as kind of the command center for our fallen, sinful, depraved nature. That's summed up by our flesh. We're in the flesh. The lusts of the flesh are the sinful desires that can take many different forms. Sexual lusts, the lust for power or fame or covetousness of any kind, the lust or the desire, the love of money or the love of food or the love of pleasure. The lusts of the flesh are the opposite of the desires of the Holy Spirit. These fleshly lusts are also kind of cousins to worldly lusts or desires as well that we should avoid. John tells us in 1 John 2.15 that we're not to love the world nor the things in the world for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We're to avoid those things. We're to abstain from those things. Now the world around us that we live in, this foreign country that we live in, has a great appetite for fleshly lusts. Whatever the flesh of the unbeliever desires, that's what they pursue. And when you're a slave to fleshly lusts, you're all into pleasing yourself. You really don't care about pleasing God. But we're to be different. So he exhorts believers, abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, the very fact that he would exhort them to abstain means that believers are still tempted by our fleshly lusts. We still struggle with those things. So that when the Lord Jesus saves us, we're not made perfect. The Holy Spirit indwells us, but we still have the remnant of the flesh. We still have 
the remnant of the old man within us. Now true, it's in a weakened condition, our sin nature, but it's still very powerful. It can exert a very strong pull on our hearts and our souls to drag us into sin. It's a battle that we face. But the enslaving, dominating power of our flesh has been broken, but it's still there. And it can still trouble us. It can entangle us. It can lure us into sin. So our flesh, which we still have within us because we have the Holy Spirit, but we still have the flesh, the flesh continually drips its poison into our soul. And that can penetrate our best thoughts, our best motives, and defile them. These fleshly lusts, Peter tells them, wages war against our soul. This is serious, what he's, what he's telling them to do. Abstain from them because these fleshly lusts are at war with you. In other words, these lusts are not just playing games with us. This is dangerous. These fleshly lusts are at war with our new nature, which indicates the enmity and the hostility. And that's why we struggle sometimes with our, with our sin nature so often because there is a civil war going on within our soul. The spirit against the flesh. Galatians 5.17, Paul lays that out. That the spirit is against the flesh and the flesh is in opposition to the spirit so that you can't do the things that you please. It's a battle. It's a war. So this internal battle is constant. And the goal of the flesh is to capture your soul, to bring it into sin, to entangle us so that we're useless to God, our witness is ruined, or we get so discouraged by our failure over and over and over again that we live defeated Christian lives. That's what the the flesh wants to do to us. These fleshly lusts want to entangle us and capture us like prisoners of war So that suddenly we're not free to live out the glory of Christ and obedience to Christ. So that's the battle you and I are in. It's a battle that is something that uh, we live with all the time. So Peter exhorts them, this is what you need to do regarding those fleshly lusts that are waging war against your soul. You need to abstain. Abstain from them. Now the word abstain here literally carries the idea of separate yourself from them. Put distance between you and that fleshly lust. Whatever it is, get away from it. And this is in the present tense, so it means it's something we should be an ongoing duty and responsibility of of every child of God. Continually abstain from fleshly lusts. Now, we're very familiar today with social distancing because of the COVID. But this is kind of a spiritual distancing that should take place with our lusts. Those desires of our flesh, when they start manifesting, when they start sticking their head up out of the soil of our soul, that's when we distance ourselves from them. We, we spiritually, socially distance ourselves. And that's our duty. That's our responsibility. This is the concept that Solomon 
instructed his son back in Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8, to warn him to stay away from the adulteress. And he says to his son, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Because if you do, you're going to suffer great loss and endure much pain. In fact, later on he'll say that if you, if you do go near that house, and if you do engage in that sin, you'll be like an ox on its way to slaughter. So don't go near it. Run from it. Paul exhorts Timothy, flee from youthful lust. Get away from it. Stay away from it. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. So wherever that temptation of fleshly lust is entering into your home, the home of your heart, get away from it. Whether it's through your phone or your computer or TV or magazines or books or stores, avoid them. Put distance between you and that lust, that temptation, the source of that lust. Get away from it. And part of the help for us to do that is to remember who we are. We are aliens and strangers. All of the entrapments, all of the sins, all of the desires of this world, that's not where we come from. This is not our home. Our home is heaven. We live by different values, by different standards. Remember who you are. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're a holy priesthood. We're a holy nation. Don't engage in unholy activity. Remember who you are. Be different. We must not conform to this world. As Paul says to the Corinthians who struggled with these very issues, he said to them, what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? A name for Satan. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And we are the temple of the living God, he tells them. Rather, come out from their midst and be separate. That is, abstain. Put distance between you and them. Now, Peter has already exhorted them along these lines earlier in chapter 1, verse 14. He said, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. So in other words, after you come to know Christ, you're washed with all all your sins have been washed away. You're a new creature in Christ. Don't go back into your old way of life. Don't go go back and start living like you used to live. Don't do that. Paul puts it differently in Romans chapter 6. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Don't let sin reign. Repent of it. Get away from it. Don't let it reign in your body that you obey its lust. And then Romans 13, he tells him to rather put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. See, put on and put off. It's one of Paul's concepts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put off whatever it is that tempts you to sin. 
put off the lust. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Get those away from you. And that's our responsibility. Fleshly lusts lead to sinful actions. So you try to cut it off early when it's at the lust stage before it becomes the action stage. Both are sinful. But Paul is emphasizing abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Now there's an interesting cultural thing going on that's gaining some traction within the church, unfortunately. And that is where we're beginning to allow Christians to accommodate certain lusts uh, with impunity. This is called it's kind of the debate over the side B homosexuality in the church. And this should be rejected. The side A homosexuality within the church are those who think that I can live the life of a homosexual and still be a, a Christian in good standing. I can engage in all the homosexual sexual behavior and everything else, but I'm I'm still a Christian, so I'm a gay Christian. That would be side A homosexuality. Well, that's clearly wrong. Side B homosexuality says that basically, if I'm a homosexual, I won't practice it. I won't actually engage in homosexual sex. But at the same time, I still identify as a homosexual. I can still dress like one and act like one and speak like one. And uh, I can still view myself as part of the LGBTQ plus community, but I'm a Christian. And as long as I don't engage in the act of homosexual sex, then I can be a disciple of Christ in good standing. And rather than seeking a transformation in their sexual desires in order to be qualified for biblical marriage, they think that my desires, my lusts, are not sinful. The actions are, but so I, I won't engage in the action, but it's okay for the desires to still be there. They can tempt me, but in and of themselves, that's who I am. I'm a basically a side B homosexual and a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's coming into the church. The problem with that is that a gay Christian is really an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. It's like a, the breakfast cereal grape nuts, which are neither grapes nor nuts, right? A gay Christian is an oxymoron because for several reasons, and also for several reasons, this side B homosexuality is not something that needs to be brought into the church. The first reason is that the gospel is for everybody. And we're to love everybody. Homosexual, thieves, covetous, liars. The gospel's for everybody. Praise God. And But when someone from one of those sinful lifestyles come to faith in Jesus Christ, they become a new creature in Christ. We no longer identify with our past. We identify with who we are in Jesus Christ. That's very, very important to remember. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul just laid out a whole list of sins that if you engage in those, you will not inherit heaven. Homosexuality is one in there among a whole bunch of other sins. 
And then he says, and such were some of you. You're not that now. You were, but you're not that now. You're a new creature in Christ. For us to identify with what we were is a denial of our identity in Christ. And we should not deny that. We are a new creature in Christ. We are a holy priesthood. We're called out of darkness into His light. So one reason why the side B homosexuality mindset that's coming into the church is, is wrong is because they fail to identify with their new nature rather than the, they're identifying with their old nature. And that we should not do. And secondly, another reason why that's wrong is that the lusts are as much sinful as the actions. Now they can say, well, as long as I don't engage in homosexual activity, my fleshly lusts in that area are not sinful. Now they are, they are sinful. The lusts are as wrong as the, as the behavior. That's why we have the 10th commandment. Thou shalt not covet. That's an inner desire of the heart. That is sinful. If you covet another person's husband or wife or their cattle or their car or their house, that desire is sinful according to the 10th commandment. Jesus said in Matthew 5, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So the lust is as much of a sin as the action is a sin. And you, and you cannot muddy those waters. That's why Paul exhorts the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. So we need to be cleansed from the, the defilements in our soul, in our spirit, our inner man, as well as our flesh, our, our outward activities as well. So all this abstain from fleshly behavior, yes, but from fleshly lusts as well, because those inner desires are sinful too. So we need to be repenting and confessing those as well. Well, Peter is exhorting them to abstain from fleshly lust. Don't try to legitimize them or don't try to in any way exonerate them or justify them. Abstain from the lusts because the lusts are sinful. And thank God we have the power to do that in Christ. We're not alone. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us in fighting these battles. Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. You won't carry out the lusts of the flesh. So we need to be walking by the Spirit. That's the power to overcome and triumph over these inner battles that we have. Uh, the Spirit can elevate our spiritual immune system to protect us against the spiritual viruses of the flesh. The Holy Spirit is like the, the spiritual killer T-cells that can assassinate those lusts within our soul. But we need to walk by the Spirit. Well, how do you do that? Well, we could do a long study on what that might mean, but certainly draw close to Jesus Christ. 
You walk by the Spirit when you're walking close to Jesus Christ and according to His Word. That's how we walk by the Spirit. You draw closer to the Lord. Lord, I'm struggling in this area. I'm, I've, I've experienced failure after failure. Oh Lord, help me. You draw closer to Christ. You go to the Word of God and, and ask for the Lord and the Spirit of God to take His truth and to transform us and to gird up our thinking. So you draw close to Christ. You draw close to His Word. And you're sensitive to your sin and you confess it and ask for forgiveness and ask for more power, more strength. So in verse 11, he's exhorting them as aliens and strangers. You're only here for a little while. Remember that. Abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against us. So be different from the world. The world will not abstain from those lusts. The world will pursue them. That's their God. That's what they want. That's their appetite. But we abstain from them. Now why? In verse 12, Peter goes on and says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So part of the motivation for being different, for abstaining from the fleshly lust that the world pursues after, is so that you can have a gospel witness to the world around us. Look at what he says in verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now many of these believers were Gentiles in the flesh. Now they're a holy nation in the Spirit. But he says, keep your, excellent, your behavior excellent among these unbelievers. So there's both a put off <clears throat> abstain from fleshly lusts, but now put on an excellent behavior. The word excellent <clears throat> in the New American Standard can be translated with the ideas of that which is good or beautiful or useful or noble or praiseworthy or blameless or pleasing to God. In other words, let your lifestyle be pleasing to God. Let it be beautiful. Let it be good in God's eyes. Let that describe your lifestyle. The word behavior really refers to all areas of our life. At work, let your language, let your behavior be excellent. Let it be excellent. Let it be beautiful in the eyes of Christ. At home, the way we treat our family, our spouses. At leisure, when I'm at play. And all of our behaviors strive for it to be excellent, to be beautiful, to be holy and righteous in the eyes of God. He goes on to say, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, in other words, you're living among these unbelievers and they're going to look upon you and they're going to slander you. You're going to be slandered as a Christian. He says, let your lifestyle, let your behavior be excellent so that when they slander you as evildoers, they can observe your good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. But he says, part of what he's saying in here is as you live out your life as strangers and aliens, you're going to be slandered by the world. 
the world will slander you. We know that because the world, according to the Old Testament prophets, the world calls evil good and good evil. So we're going to suffer many accusations and many slandering words by the world. It's interesting how they slandered the early church. The early church was accused of incest. Oh, so-and-so, he's a Christian and he married his sister. Sister in the Lord, of course. But they're engaging in incest. These Christians, you gotta, got to wonder about them. Or cannibalism. They're eating the body of Christ and drinking His blood. They're cannibals. These are some of the slandering rumors that went out against the early church. They're guilty of treason because they're worshiping a different king besides Caesar, a different Lord, not Caesar, but Jesus Christ. They're guilty of treason. Or they're atheists because they don't worship any of our pagan gods. They don't even believe in our gods. They're they're atheists. So these are some of the slandering words that they had to endure. Some of the first century Roman historians said that Christians were loathed because of their abominations. Another one said that Christians were a class of people animated by novel and mischievous superstition. So expect to be slandered. We'll be slandered today on many levels. We believe that abortion is wrong. Well, you're, you're against all women's rights. Or we oppose homosexuality. Well, you're against sexual rights. Or you're, you're a racist. You just have to expect to be slandered today. Jesus told His disciples, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. Expect it. People are not going to understand our moral stance, our moral values. They're going to totally disagree with it. And they will slander us because of our attempt to live according to God's standards. But the point is, we don't compromise with the world to get the approval of the world. We don't begin to compromise with side A, oh, homosexuality in the church, or side B, so that we can get the approval of the world. No, we're seeking the approval of God, not the approval of the world. So expect to be slandered. It comes with the territory. If we're never getting slandered, then we're too much a part of the world. We've embraced the world too much. If the world doesn't slander us, it's because we're too much like them. No, we will be slandered because we live by strive with God's help to live by His standards and His morality, not the world's. But notice what Peter also says here in verse 12. The effect of a godly life. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So in other words, keep your behavior excellent because even though the world will slander us because of the values we live by, nevertheless, even though they slander us, if we live good lives, if we are full of good deeds, if we love our neighbor, 
and desire their salvation, if we do good to our neighbor, then they will see that and they will realize that maybe they have falsely slandered us. The possibility that some of them may come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we oppose their slanders against us with sanctified living is what Peter is saying. Be different. That's the point. That they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here's one of the things that Peter wants us to to be aware of. People are watching you. People are listening to you at work and at home and in the world and in the store. People are watching. They're watching us. And I'm not talking about the NSA or Google, you know, keeping track of everything that we do. But people, non-Christians, our co-workers, our neighbors, our, our friends are watching and listening to us. And they are judging Christ by our lives. And if our lives are full of, of uh, sin or hate or we're just... We're more in the deeds of the flesh than walking in the fruit of the Spirit. That has an impact upon our Savior. How they view our Savior. But what Peter is saying is if you pursue an excellent behavior, even though they don't understand why we're living on the moral level, the standard that we strive for, nevertheless, when they see our good works, that we're helping other people. We're trying to minister to people. We're ministering to the poor. We're helping those that are downtrodden. We're, we're trying to love our neighbor. When we do that, then it can offset their slander. And he goes on to say that some of them will even glorify God in the day of visitation. Now that can be interpreted two different ways. That they will glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation could refer to the day that the Lord comes and saving grace into the heart of a lost person that could happen now. It can happen today. The day of visitation. When the Lord comes and visits with His grace and mercy someone who has no mercy and He saves them. Uh, it's interesting, James in Acts chapter 15 referred to this same concept when he referred to Peter, how Peter related to us how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His own name. Now what what he's talking about is when Peter went to Cornelius, the Gentile, and preached the Gospel. First God sent an angel to Cornelius. Then He sent Peter. And God visited Cornelius and they came to faith in Christ. So that's a visitation that can happen now. It's the same thing that happens with Lydia in Acts 16, verse 14, when it says that God opened her heart so she could respond to the things that Paul was preaching. God visited her. He came in that grace, that day of visitation, that day of salvation that came into her into her heart. And so that's why we need to be different. That's why we need to strive for a lifestyle that is excellent and morally pure and godly and righteous because people are watching. They're watching us. 
They may not understand our gospel. They may not understand our values. But if they see the quality of your life and the love that comes out of our hearts, then that can soften their animosity towards the gospel. And God may visit them. And they will glorify God when they come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Peter has in mind here. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So that day of visitation could refer to what's happening now when God saves sinners. The other way to interpret it is that the day of visitation refers to the last day when God will visit all men when He resurrects the living and the dead. They all appear before Him and there's the the great white throne judgment. The judgment of the sheep and the goats. And they all stand before God. And even on that day, unbelievers will glorify God in the day of of, of visitation. If it's referring to the last day, the day of judgment, even unbelievers will glorify God. Not meaning that they get saved, but it's like what Paul says in Philippians 2, that God has glorified His Son in the resurrection, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who are judged and damned will give glory to Jesus Christ. They will acknowledge Christ to be Lord. So maybe that's the other way that this could be interpreted. So basically, Peter is exhorting his readers to be different. To live a pure life a holy life, a life of excellent behavior. Because a life polluted by the fleshly lusts will affect our witness. It's like shoveling dirt on a campfire. And when you do that, you just smother out the light. You smother out the flame and the heat. And whenever we give way to fleshly lust, it's like we're we're shoveling dirt on the on the the light that's within us, the fire that's within us. Peter wants our lives to be a, a good gospel witness for Jesus Christ, because for many people, the only gospel that they may hear is just what they see in you, your lifestyle, and your words. Most unbelievers don't just walk into a church where the gospel's being preached. No, they're exposed to it through your life, through Monday, through Friday, Saturday. So as we engage at work with neighbors, with people around us, we're sometimes the only gospel that they see or hear. It's what they see in our life. So I need to strive for an excellent behavior, being rich and full of good deeds so that some of them may glorify God in the day of visitation. Someone once wrote, you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do, by the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithless or true. So what is the gospel according to you?
should make us pause and think, shouldn't it? How do people see me? Do they know I'm a Christian? Do they see that I'm just living just like any other lost person? Or do they see a difference in my life? When unbelievers criticize us for our biblical values, let them see an excellent behavior, a love for other people, a desire to help others. And though they may slander us, may they see that we're different. We're not worshiping at the altar of self. We're not worshiping the idols that they worship. We're different. So here's the challenge from Peter. Let your light shine. Be different. By your words, by your actions, by your attitudes, be different. Let people see that we are followers of Jesus Christ. I'm more interested in pleasing Him than pleasing the world or even pleasing myself. As someone once said, if we were arrested for being a Christian, if someone came and arrested you for being a Christian and they brought you to trial, and the prosecuting attorney came before the judge, would there be enough evidence to convict us that we are Christians? Would there be enough witnesses to say, oh yeah, he's, he's, he's a Christian. He not only says it, but he's different. His life is different. He doesn't engage in all the lust and the worldliness that we all get. He's different. Can they say that about us? Because that's Peter's point. Abstain from fleshly lusts. Pursue a a lifestyle of excellence so that unbelievers might see the difference and come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Peter wants for all of us. And may the Holy Spirit make it so. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we want to thank You, Lord, for the challenge and the exhortation that we have received from the Apostle Peter. And Lord, we know that when it comes to abstaining from fleshly lust, this is a battle. And for some, it can be an intense battle, a long-term battle. But Lord, we just don't put any confidence in our flesh. We don't put any confidence in our strength, Lord. We know that apart from You, we can do nothing. So help us, Lord, to abide in the vine as the branch abides in the vine. Because You're the source of our strength. You're the source of our grace. You're the source of godliness and holiness within our life. So make us sensitive to our sin. Help us to feel our sin, O God that we might turn from it and confess it. And then open our eyes to see the glory and the love of Jesus Christ and to flee from our sin, but to run close to the Lord Jesus. To be in His Word, to renew the the inner man, that it might be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So Lord, help us all. You know our individual battles. You know our individual struggles. But help each of us to draw near to You with the promise that You will draw near to us. So Lord, bless and sanctify Your church that we might be the light of the world 
and the salt of the earth that more and more unbelievers through our witness might come to faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this for the glory of His name and His kingdom. Amen.